You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I think we all can agree these past couple of years have been a time of change. Many of us are living in completely different realities than we were two years ago, whether because of the pandemic, social changes, or a combination of the two. In today's episode, we have two stories from storytellers who have experienced paradigm shifts. Our first story is from Carl Zimmer. It was recorded last December at a closed live stream show in New York City. The theme that night was belonging. So it's a bright winter morning in the Adirondacks. There's a fresh layer of snow on the forest floor. And I look ridiculous because I am trying to put on chest waders in the snow, which is something you really shouldn't try to do. And I've never really put on chest waders before. I'm not a fly fishing type, um, but this is what I have to do. Uh, and so I've got my shoes off, and I'm hopping up and down, trying not to end up with a foot soaked in snow. And what makes me feel even more ridiculous is that standing right in front of me are two biologists, one also named Carl, the other Katie, and they already have their chest waders on. They put them on like an old pair of slippers, because this is what they do for a living. They're very nice, and they wait, and they wait, and I struggle, and eventually I get them on, and I suit up, and the three of us are ready. And so we step down into a stream. We're not here for winter fly fishing. Uh, we start walking upstream into the mouth of an abandoned mine. This is February 27th, 2020. And as I'm going from that bright, snowy day into the darkness of the mine, I'm thinking, this is probably the last adventure I'm going to have before the pandemic. Because it's been a couple months that the pandemic has been on my mind. Um, I write about viruses, among other things, for a living, so I like to sort of keep tabs on virologist chatter. And in early January, they were like talking about some pneumonia in China. I didn't know what to make of it at the time. I mean, viruses come and go, and, and I was sort of distracted. I mean, I was working on a book about life and what it means to be alive. So I was in the middle of research and taking trips to labs and deserts and other places to sort of see life in all its extremes. But the virus kept coming back in my face. Uh, you know, I would read about how like a dozen cases became 
couple hundred cases. China is suddenly shutting down Wuhan. I didn't know how big Wuhan was, so I looked it up. It's bigger than New York City. And by the end of January, when I would meet with other journalists who write about viruses for a living, I would start to hear the P word. We we're going to look at a pandemic. So by February, to my friends, I sound crazy um, because <laughs> for me, the coronavirus is like an asteroid heading to Earth. So right now, it just looks like a little dot in the sky. But I have a feeling that it's pretty soon it's going to be a fireball. I just don't know when. Um, so I would tell people, like, hey, maybe you should go shopping for food for a month. <laughs> or, you know, they would say, like, we want to make a meeting in June. We want to get, make plans for a meeting in June. Uh, and I would say, like, I don't think people are going to be getting together in June at all. We went to, uh, you know, my wife and I went to a dinner at a, some friends, and, and the door opens, and they come out for a hug, and I step back. I'm like, no hugs. I'm not even going to shake her hand, which didn't go over very well, um, because nobody had COVID yet. Um, but of course, like, paranoia doesn't make you brilliant. <laughs> so I would just walk in after not hugging them and sit down and have dinner with them when we'd all breathe in each other's aerosols for hours. Um, that didn't give me COVID, thankfully. Um, but I did decide I was not going to be flying anymore. So these trips I had planned for this book canceled, 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 except one. There was one I could get to by car, and I really wanted to go. I really wanted to go in that mine. So hopped in the car, drove for four hours to Albany, uh, met Carl and Katie, they picked me up, we drove into the Adirondacks, got to the end of a gravel road, took our gear out of their SUV, we hauled through the snow, got our chest waders on by the stream, plunked down into the stream, and started walking into the mine. So this was a mine where they used to uh, mine graphite in the 1800s. This would end up in pencils. Uh, but by the early 1900s, the whole thing went bust, and so the miners abandoned it, and it's been falling apart ever since. And we were walking in. And Carl, the biologist, is telling me about all the ways that I could get hurt as we're going in. He's saying, well, the rocks have been falling down, and you know, there's sharp rocks in this stream, so don't cut your chest waders on one of these sharp rocks, because then freezing water will go into your boots, and you'll get hypothermia. And then he looks up, and he says, you just don't want to touch the ceiling. So. We're going in, and I'm trying not to get killed, and, and I'm looking around with a flashlight, and it's an amazing place. Uh, you know, as the water streams down the walls of the mine, you know, it carries minerals with it, and then the minerals get deposited in these bizarre ribbons. And Carl tells me that this is called cave bacon. So I'm looking at the cave bacon, and then I notice that Katie has stopped eventually and has her flashlight trained at something on the wall. So I'm wondering what she's seen, and so I come up next to her, and there on the wall, there's something that looks like a furry pear. It's a hibernating bat. And so... I'm looking at this bat, and it's just um, so marvelous that there's this bit of life in this very lifeless place, very dangerous place. And I think about what life has been like for this bat for the past few months. You know, in the summer of 2019, 
um, before anybody knew about COVID. This bat was flying around all night in the Adirondacks. It was eating mosquitoes and moths. And then when the sun came up, it would find a mine or a cave or an attic and it would just roost and just chill out for the day. And the sun went down, and it would come out again, and it would start eating again. And it would just be eating and eating and eating to, to fuel itself. And through all of that cycle of day and night, of, of resting and flying around, the interior of its body was very stable. This is like a hallmark of life. Scientists call it homeostasis. Its, its blood pressure was stable. Its body temperature was flat. Its blood sugar didn't change. It had feedback loops, just like we do, just like all living things do. But then, one day, this bat, at the end of an evening, uh, when the sun was coming up, uh, went into this mine, and it roosted, and then when the sun went down, it didn't come out. It just stayed there, and it went through an incredible transformation. Its body temperature fell to the temperature of the mine. But that's okay, because the mine itself is very stable. It's a very cool, steady temperature. Its heart slowed down to a new set point. So instead of just beating a couple hundred times a second, it was now beating maybe 10 times a second. Boom. Boom. So now it had reached a new kind of homeostasis, and this would take it through the winter. It didn't need to eat. It could just live off a tiny little dollop of fat that it built up over the summer. So I, I'm, I'm looking at this bat, and I'm thinking that, you know, that, to me, this is an unbelievably dangerous place, but for this bat, this, this mine is, is incredibly safe because it can find a new kind of balance, a new homeostasis here to get through the winter. So we go further into the, into the mine and we find more bats. Some are alone on the wall, some are in clusters. Uh, we're talking about what kind of species they are and things like that. And, um, you know, for me, it's fantastic. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like this. I'm so glad I got my chest waders on eventually. And, but, you know, I think for for Carl and Katie, it must be kind of sad because, you know, if we were here 20 years ago, we would have seen a thousand bats, not just a couple dozen. The problem is that around 2006, somebody, don't know who, was in Europe and they picked up a little fungus on their shoe, I guess, and they came here to upstate New York and they went into a mine or a cave or something and they left that fungus there and that fungus got into a bat. And this fungus loves living on bats. And these bats in the United States don't know how to defend themselves against this fungus. So when it got cool, the fungus grew into the, into the bat's body. It created a little white fuzz around its nose, which gave the disease its name, white nose syndrome. And this is a disease of homeostasis. In other words, the bats can't spend the winter in this stable state. They're fighting the fungus so much that they wake up in the middle of winter. They get thirsty. They try to drink. They might get even hungry and fly out of the mine and immediately get killed by a hawk. And the bats that make it through the winter are in terrible shape in the spring, and a lot of them die. So white-nose syndrome started just wiping out populations in New York State, and the bats themselves spread it. They spread this pandemic to the south, to the west, 
to Texas to California, where the bats now are dealing with it. This is this is a this is a colossal problem for for the bats, and we don't really have a good solution for it. You know, there's no white nose vaccine, and you know, even if there was, like you know, good luck vaccinating a bat. Um, so we just have to wait and see. And yet, here I was looking at these bats who were still here, who were still alive. They they have some mysterious resilience we don't understand to, to white nose syndrome. And now, after withstanding this pandemic, they were withstanding the winter. And in the spring, they were going to come out and live again. So after a few hours of communing with the bats, we found a slope of rubble, and we climbed up with a little bit of light at the, at the top, and we didn't kill each other or crack our skulls on the way out. Uh, we came out safe and sound into that snowy morning again, uh, and I drove home. And, you know, I thought a lot about that trip to the mine in the months that followed because, you know, I came home at the end of February and our kids came home within a couple of weeks and they were home, you know, doing school over Zoom. Uh, I finished up my book and started writing about COVID every single day. I would wake up in the morning, there'd be another story to write about COVID, about the disease, about vaccines, about medications, about a new variant. Every single day was about COVID. It was kind of hard to tell the difference from one day to another. Uh, and after a while, I just thought, I just have to be like that bat. Every day, getting through the winter, waiting for spring to come back. Thank you. That was Carl Zimmer. Carl is a columnist for the New York Times, where he's been covering COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. He's also the author of 14 books about science, including Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. This is the third story that Carl has shared with us at the Story Quieter. You can check out his other amazing stories on our website. A few reminders before we proceed with today's episode. First, if you'd like to sharpen your storytelling skills and learn more about the science of storytelling, our February online workshop still has a few spots left. Find out more at storyclider.org workshops. Next, we have a few online shows coming up in the winter months with stories from New York, St. Louis, and more. Our next show is coming up on January 26th with stories from Amherst, Massachusetts. Find out more about all of these shows at storyclider.org shows. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like all of us at StoryClider, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the StoryClider at storyclider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestoryclider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We are so grateful to everyone who supports the work that we do at the Story Collider. And for those of you whose end-of-year donations we're just now receiving and and adding into our tally, we're so grateful to everyone who contributed to our end-of-year campaign. Again, we so appreciate it. 
And just as a final note, we are also, for the first time ever, selling merch on our website. So if you would like to buy a StoryQuieter hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storyquieter.org store. Your purchases help to support our work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Our second story today is from Aya Osman. It was recorded last November at a closed live stream show in New York City. Apologies with regard to audio quality. The last minute or so had to be taken from our live stream audio because the idiot who was running the recording equipment accidentally stopped it too early by pulling out her headphones. And that idiot was me. <laughs> so again, I'm very sorry. And I'm very sorry to Aya. But I think her story will come through very powerfully regardless. Once again, this is Aya Osman, last November in New York City. The theme that night was fight or flight. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, it's lovely to be here. My name's Aya Osman, and my opportunity to fight or take flight came after I moved here from London in the United Kingdom. I arrived in the middle of a sizzling heat wave in the summer of 2018 BC to an empty fifth-story apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan with absolutely no air conditioning. Back in England, I had left behind adorable nephews, nieces, uncles, brothers, sisters, parents, friends, and a five-year relationship on its last legs with a struggling musician who smoked weed like a chimney and saw me as a free ticket to New York. <laughs> Despite all of this, um, I made the decision to move here to the Big Apple in pursuit of my postdoctoral training as a neuroscientist, as mentioned, at a world-renowned research institute where I was to study the connection between the trillions of bacteria living in our gut and how they influence the brain in autism spectrum disorders and addiction as well. So I was excited to say the very least. And this was to be my second or third time immigrating, depending on how you look at it, my first immigration having been from Sudan in Africa, where my parents are originally from, to the Middle East, uh, to Saudi Arabia, where I was born, and then from Saudi Arabia to the UK in 1996, age seven years old. So because I'd moved around so much, I thought, oh, moving to New York will be easy. <laughs> yeah, so I recall a couple of incidents in my first few weeks here, which gave me glimpses into both the small and large social challenges I was about to face. One of these incidents happened in my second or third day here. I walked into Starbucks already yearning for something familiar. I got to the cashier and I asked for my usual, a small cappuccino and a pan au chocolat. 
the cashier looks at me with this blank expression on her face and says, a what? I repeated myself. I said, a, a pan au chocolat. Her expression didn't change an inch. And she was like, a what? So this time I pointed at the pastry I wanted and I said, pan au chocolat. To which she responds, oh, you mean a chocolate croissant. <laughs> the expression on her face screaming, why must you complicate things? Meanwhile, I'm left thinking, this is the place that names all its cup sizes in Italian, but they don't know. Anyway, <laughs> at that moment, at that moment, I was left really thinking this, you know, my, my official identity here in the States was a legal alien, and I truly felt like a legal alien. The second incident carried larger and slightly heavier implications. Um, it was on my first day of orientation. I arrived a little earlier than the proposed start time of 9 a.m., English breakfast cup of tea glued to my hand, the heat from the cup giving me the sense of comfort, and I took a seat to the edge of the room and I started taking in my surroundings. The room slowly began to fill up and what I noticed then would honestly probably stay with me forever. It's what I could only describe as an army of cleaning staff, all dressed in uniform to one side of the room and all of whom, without exception, were people of color. To the other side of the room, closer to where I was sitting, the room was filling up with white individuals who were clearly the fellow doctors. Never in my life had I seen segregation that vast. And so I sat back and I started to wonder what this means for me as a black female Muslim immigrant doctor in the United States. Fast forward and it's now March 22nd, 2020. I'm standing inches away from my TV, tuned in to listen to Governor Cuomo provide his daily updates on the COVID-19 or the growing COVID-19 pandemic at the time. He then announces that 8 p.m. that evening, an official stay-at-home order would commence in New York City. Now, as an international person, during a global pandemic, a stay-at-home order is probably one of the scariest things you could hear. And so at hearing this announcement, my heart rate shot through the roof, my breathing became shallow and more frequent, my body tensed up. This was my fight-or-flight response kicking in. I looked to the corner of the TV to check the time, and I realized I had a few hours before 8 p.m. to make a decision on what to do. In a panic, I flung open my wardrobe, pulled out my travel suitcase, threw a few pieces of clothing in the bag, my mind racing. Okay, so if I stay to further my scientific career and something happens to a loved one back home and I'm unable to travel and go see them, how would I feel? Would I forgive myself? Did I even want to stay in a place and start dealing with all the social challenges I'm facing yet again as a black woman, this time in a country run by the likes of Donald Trump? A man who was suggesting that drinking bleach might be of benefit during a global pandemic. I was like, this is too much. So at that moment and over the next few weeks to come, I was left navigating literally one of the hardest decisions of my life. So what did I decide? My bag was packed and ready to go, by the way, my bag honestly stayed packed and by the front door for weeks and months to come. I recently unpacked it. Um, but something in my gut was telling me to hang on. Probably those trillions of tiny bacteria in there <laughs> signaling to my brain saying, wait. Um, the reasons why becoming clearer over the next few weeks. So as we moved through 2020, it became evident that the people suffering the most during the COVID-19 pandemic were people who have been oppressed 
or marginalized by oppressive systems in society. For example, we know that black and Native American COVID-19 death rate was approaching twice that of white counterparts. The same trend was observed outside of the US where we know that social inequalities resulted in distinct disease outcomes in, hold on, let me get the acronym we're given in the UK correct. I believe it's B-A-M-E, which stands for Black Asian Minority Ethnic Communities. Not to be confused with B-A-M-F, badass motherfucker. <laughs> so again, this was compared um, to white counterparts. Um, and so this striking trend in the US and globally was eventually uh, confirmed to be associated with a risk, infection risk, um, driven by societal factors rather than biological differences in how deadly the disease was. And so this emerging link between the COVID-19 pandemic and social inequalities really started to open up my eyes to the ways that racism in all its forms, overt, covert, institutional, structural, had affected my life as a black woman across multiple countries. It extended as far back as being the only black kid in my class in school in Saudi Arabia and putting up my hand in class to answer a question and seeing the teacher look directly at me for a few seconds before her gaze would move on and scan the rest of the room for someone else to select. One day when I was in year one, um, I finished class for the day, again we're in Saudi Arabia, and I go next door to my sister's class to collect her. I get to her class and I see her standing near the front with a nervous expression on her face. And she'd taken out her hair, her hair was in braids, she took out the braids and her hair stood there in all its glory in a full afro. I got closer to her and I said, why'd you take out your braids? Mom's gonna be so mad at you, your hair's all tangled up, you're gonna get into trouble, blah, blah, blah. She looks up at me, innocent expression on her face, and she says, I just want my hair to be soft and smooth like everyone else in my class. That feeling of being different, being an outsider, being discriminated against, extended into our time in the UK. Shortly after the 9-11 attacks, my brother gets home a lot later than usual. And when he gets home, we're like, what's up, what happened? And he tells us that he got pulled over the, by the police for no other reason than being a black man in a car wearing a hoodie. They tell him to step out the car and hand over his license. And so he does that. And one look at his license with his Muslim name printed all over it was enough for them to not only start searching his car, but dismantling his car piece by piece in front of his very eyes. And he's unable to say anything, all under the terrorism act. I remember the heaviness in his face and voice as he was telling us the story. And I remember the feeling of hopelessness that I felt in my gut knowing there was absolutely nothing I could do to protect either my older brothers or my younger brothers who were like eight and 12 at the time from the encounters they were about to face in a post 9-11 world as black and Muslim men. We're now back in New York and it's the height of the pandemic and one afternoon, I look down at my phone and I see an incoming call from my mother. And of course, as an expat, when you get a call from home, the first thing you think is, uh-oh, what's wrong? I answer the phone and instantly from her voice, I knew something was wrong. Um, there was a long pause during which my mind ran through every possible scenario. And she then tells me that her brother, who, a younger brother who'd caught the virus a few weeks earlier was found dead in his home in Sudan that morning. I honestly didn't know how to respond. I asked if she was okay. And then I asked if I could call her back in a few moments. 
Um, and so I walked over to the mirror and kind of stared at my reflection in shock. And I remember the thought that ran through my mind was, if Sudan had never been colonized and left in political and economical tatters with poor access to healthcare, would my uncle still be with us here today? And here I was stood in, in the middle of this apartment in one of the most expensive parts of New York with access to some of the best healthcare, knowing so many of my family members didn't. And so these realizations uh, or these incidents combined made me realize that despite everything that made me different in the US, there was something very common about my experiences and those of black Americans. To add insult to injury during this time of social awakening, um, uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed at the hands of law enforcement, and this was the final straw needed to ignite the Black Lives Matter protest, a movement that for me would be pivotal in solidifying my own identity and how it aligned with um, the, the experiences of black Americans and the Black Lives Matter protest. And so we're now in May, I think it's May 28th, um, I'm returning from a biking session around Central Park, something I was doing quite often during lockdown. And I'm about to dock my city bike back um, when I hear a crowd marching down Madison Avenue to my right shouting, Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! I froze. For the second time in just weeks, I felt the familiar increase in my heart rate, my breathing rate, my palms started to sweat, I felt the adrenaline run through my body, my hands tightened grip on the bike that I was just about to dock. Uh, but this time it was different. Mixed in with the fear taking over my body, I felt excitement. Running through my mind at that moment was America's rich history of protests. And I knew that this country was not only founded on them, but had a, a history of triumphs from such uprisings. And here I was, feet away from what would become one of the most largest widespread social movements in American history. And one that would go on to ignite global Black Lives Matter protests. And I knew that in America, we had, uh, we had, you know, we had more numbers here. So for example, back in the UK, we've got a much smaller percentage of our population who's black. And so often our cries for change and understanding in the UK are stifled. And a prime example of this is the UK government's race report commissioned in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests essentially rejected the suggestion that institutional racism existed in Britain, of all places. I mean, did they even ask the Queen? Simple, that's all they needed to do. So anyway, all of this runs through my mind in moments. I docked my bike, I uh, turned around and I joined, I went to find the, the, the protest and I turned into the intersection between Madison Avenue and 97th Street and I see this impressive crowd emerging, people of all ages carrying signs, some carrying banners, of course, some carrying drums and making music, all of them with their blue surgical masks pulled over their faces, perfect sign of the time. I stood there for a few seconds and I took it all in and then I pulled up my own face mask and I joined my newly identified brothers and sisters. It was honestly one of the most beautiful feelings I had ever experienced in my life. The feeling of um, common, common understanding, solidarity, and just relief at letting it all out. And a few minutes into marching, I start to see some familiar faces emerge in the crowd and their, their non-black colleagues from work that I hadn't seen in months because of the lockdown. I go over and I greet them and we continue marching. And at one point, I just looked over my shoulder at my colleagues and I'm like, yeah, 
this is normal. This is exactly how I thought we'd all be reunited after months apart, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder shouting, Black Lives Matter. For the first time since moving to the US, I didn't feel like an alien. I felt a beautiful sense of purpose and belonging. Thank you. That was Aya Osman. Aya is a UK-trained neuroscientist currently studying the connection between the gut and the brain in a range of neuropsychiatric conditions, including addiction and autism, at Icon School of Medicine in New York. Before embarking on her PhD and subsequent postdoctoral research journey, she completed a Master's of Science in Toxicology and worked for the governmental body Public Health England. She is also an international fashion model, and she uses the skill set she gains from this work, combined with her extensive scientific training, to communicate important scientific findings to the public in a manageable and understandable format across multiple media platforms, with a particular focus on scientific topics relevant to the Black community. Story Collider is so grateful to Carl and Aya for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Aaron Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Program Manager Misha Gajewski, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Christine Gentry and Zach Stovall, and by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. We will be back next week with another episode with live recorded stories. Until then, thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.